it's a much more complex conversation when you're really talking about these individual compounds and what effects could be there. So to me, the, the, you know, they're really just acting on fear and we're big on safety, right? Like we do not want consumers getting access to things that are unsafe. It's, it's why we would never, you know, take a new compound that's never been consumed and then say, hey, people should take this, right? The only CBN we felt comfortable with because you people have been consuming it. As long as they've been consuming cannabis, it's always been there. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host, Shada Taravi, and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Taravi, and I hope you've been enjoying the podcast. Thank you sincerely to everyone who continues to tune in, share episodes across your networks, and connect with me one-on-one with feedback and follow-up questions. It means a lot to see how far and impactful these episodes have been for each of you in your own journeys, navigating cannabis across the states and even the globe. Now, I know it's a tough time right now for a lot of people as the industry stabilizes itself. I unfortunately continue to see major layoffs from big brands all the way down to small brands. States are still navigating regulation and legislation, and here in Texas, it's no different. We've officially kicked off the 88th Texas Legislative Session, which will go until May of 2023, and I don't know exactly when the hemp bills or medical marijuana teacup bills will be scheduled, but I anticipate some movement in late February to early March, so be on the lookout for that if you're local to Texas and wanting updates. There are bills that are pretty strongly worded against the current hemp market, So I'm doing my best to advocate and participate in protecting our industry, but the reality is we just don't know how things are going to turn out yet, so please pay attention. With that said, I will be a panelist on a great free webinar hosted by the Texas Hemp Coalition on February 17th from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. Central Time where we will go over SB 264 and SB 321, which respectively would address cannabinoids and the hemp agriculture side of things. It will be moderated by lawyer Lisa Pittman, who has been a guest on the podcast, and I'm joined by fellow Texas hemp leaders from 4K Farms, Bayou City Hemp, and New Bloom Lab. If you want the latest legislative update, then this is one to tune into, and you can RSVP by going to texashempcoalition.org slash events. While session is going on, I'm also beginning to prep for South by Southwest. My panel, The Future of Chemically Derived Cannabinoids, is taking place on Sunday, March 12th, which, by the way, cannabis tracks will be from March 10th, 11th, and 12th. If you'll be in Austin or are considering coming down, I would certainly love to see you and meet you and appreciate your presence at the panel. But if you've been tuning into the podcast, then you know my stance on things related to this topic. It's one I'm deeply passionate about and also want to continue to educate myself on and pass that information on to you my listener. So today's discussion is an extension of the bigger talk I'll be having at South by but a great deep dive into a specific aspect of that topic that I bet a lot of you aren't aware of. 
To frame today's episode up, I'll remind you that as a Texas-based hemp brand, the Farm Bill and subsequent Texas Hemp Bill have opened up quite an interesting market. Filled with Delta 8 THC, hemp-derived Delta 9 THC, and if you tuned in last week, you heard me discuss THCA flower with attorney Rod Kite. And while I'm going on my third year of this podcast, the position I'm in as both a hemp-based operator in a state like Texas, as well as the insight I gleaned from my incredible lineup of guests over the years, paints a really interesting picture of the future of cannabis. Things are certainly changing, but there's a lot of misinformation around the words synthetic compared to synthesized, especially when it comes to the creation of Delta-8, hemp-derived Delta-9, and other cannabinoids. Specifically, I believe there are good practices and bad practices, and that is what we should be debating, not whether Delta 8 is good or bad. Because let me tell you, I have a lot of customers who, when given the chance, would choose Delta 8 effects over Delta 9 effects, and I think that that is the beauty of this plant and the great space that I get to exist in from a hemp perspective where we really are helping educate these consumers on the myriad of triggers from cannabinoids to terpenes to consumption methods to ultimately find the effect and relief that they are seeking by allowing them to decide what combination or form of the plant they want to consume. So clearly I'm on this path and I'm learning about these things and I'm having questions with customers, podcast guests, with our peers, and I'm realizing that a lot of the same people who refer to Delta 8 and have drive Delta 9 THC as synthetic are a lot of the same people who look the other way at where CBN comes from. And this is where I want to drill in for today's episode. I bet you didn't know that the majority of CBN in the marketplace is made through a chemical process. No, really, the majority of CBN in products from brands like Wana to Wild, made in legal regulated marijuana states, is made through synthesis. Now, if you're someone who looks down upon Delta 8, but you have no problem eating your one-to-one THC to CBN gummy from your local dispensary, this isn't to shame you, but to bring to light the reality of the industry. Why is CBN made this way instead of naturally occurring in the plant? Because it's more cost-effective at scale to do so. What application does making CBN and these other cannabinoids like Delta 8 have on the overall impact of these products in the marketplace? I started having this hunch a few months ago, and the more conversations I had, the more I started to realize what was unfolding, and the same people who think chemically-derived cannabinoids are the end of the industry have no problem consuming their chemically-derived CBN, and yet no one was talking about it. Except me, clearly. And to punctuate it all, it isn't a bad practice to synthesize or chemically make cannabinoids. They maintain their same chemical compound structure. So why are we as an industry afraid or reluctant to put these methods into a box? I totally understand the battle between natural and lab-made, but when you look at the potential for science to help standardize, research, and study, aren't those also things we as a cannabis professional want to seek to understand too? So that's what today's guests are here to share. They have been one of the guiding brands helping me navigate and make sense of this all. And so, of course, bringing them onto the podcast was a no-brainer to help dispel a lot of the questions I'm sure you're wondering about the what and the why. This practice isn't just relegated to the hemp industry or non-legal states like mine here in Texas. This is happening across the board in every state and every corner of the cannabis industry at large from hemp to marijuana, and I want to talk about it. Floorworks is a leading biotechnology company headquartered in Portland, Oregon, that was established in 2020. The company is dedicated to the discovery, development, and commercialization of innovative therapeutic solutions for human health and wellness. 
Their focus is on developing novel cannabinoids that address significant disease areas with high unmet medical needs using cutting edge technologies and platforms. And today we have their co-founder and CEO, Alay Lindquist, who prior to his current position was a founding partner and CEO of Swell Companies, one of Oregon's largest cannabis extraction facilities and proprietor of two of the state's most notable vape and cannabis oil brands. And we're also joined by FloorWorks VP of Research and Development, Dr. Robert Jensen, who is an accomplished analytical and organic chemist with a wealth of experience in the isolation and analysis of small organic molecules. Together, we tackle the realities of the direction the industry is going, the pros and cons, as well as what impact these types of applications on cannabinoids will have on the cannabinoid products of tomorrow. So without further ado, please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Alay and Robert to the show. My name is uh, Alay Lindquist, and I'm the president of FloorWorks. I got started in the industry roughly eight or nine years ago in the medical cannabis space in Oregon. Was an early, I guess, ad- adapter or adopter of cannabis extraction early technology, CO2 and hydrocarbon, and then got the first recreational cannabis license in the state. And in 2019, sold that business into a publicly traded company. And that's kind of where FloorWorks then started to, to become the next idea to, to work on. So FloorWorks is a rare and novel cannabinoid discovery company looking to unlock the therapeutic potential, what cannabinoids can do for and within medicine. And a lot of this is actually, you know, foundationally Rob's ideas that have come around. But yeah, I'll let him give a quick, quick intro on himself. I, my name is Rob Jensen, and I... Well, I started thinking about CBN when I was in graduate school here in Portland. At the time, Western states were decriminalizing or at least planning to build recreational systems. And I thought that the cannabinoid space would be a place for people like me, chemists, to sort of make a little bit of space for themselves. Uh, the ideas that ended up you know, turning into the, the company you know, we call FloraWorks today really began like many other companies after the passing of the November 2018 Farm Bill, which decriminalized trading in hemp products federally and allowed us to to work with certain products that we didn't have legal cover to work with before. And so along with some local partners who had experience in the Portland cannabis scene, both in the recreational space, but also in the pre-recreational medicinal system. I got together with several people and we quickly founded a company in the aftermath of the passing of the farm bill, like many other companies, and started working on exciting hemp projects. CBN was the culmination of of an idea, like I said, that I had been working on for kind of a long time, but there really wasn't practical to do on a very large scale until it became reasonable and legal to work with you know, large amounts of compounds like CBD. And so we began using CBD as a source of making CBN very early, along with only a handful of other you know, pretty sophisticated groups in Colorado, California, a few other places. So we were one of these early companies that had exciting technology that we were developing with cannabinoids from the get-go after the passing of the farm bill. 
I'm honestly like so excited for this conversation. You guys have no idea. I'm saying this again for the listeners because what we discussed prior to hitting record is really for me the like pinnacle of why I was so like eager to get you guys on the podcast and a kind of a series of events have happened. So I'm just going to kind of reiterate for those listening, right? You know, coming from Texas, like you were highlighting, when hemp became legalized, it opened up this whole marketplace of cannabinoids and discovery that I don't really think people coming from explicitly the traditional kind of cannabis markets really expected or anticipated. But because we, especially again here in Texas, we don't have access to other cannabinoids in the outright like access from a plant perspective, we got creative, right? Some people like to say the word loophole. Some people, you know, they're using other, which we're going to get into the chemistry of it. But it was so interesting to me as as a player in this state and as somebody who sits in this position with the podcast to talk across the United States of all these different markets. And I've just become so fascinated because obviously Delta 8 is a major contention for a lot of people in the conversation. Is it safe? Is it efficacious? I would argue yes and, right? It's not that every chemist out there is doing good chemistry or that every facility is is a safe, clean facility and that every process is done consistently every time. But I think the power, which is what I'm really hopeful we're going to be able to address today, and my listeners should know I'm, I'm having a series of these conversations. I've kind of been teeing it up in previous episodes. I'm also excited to have future conversations kind of unpacking this from different perspectives. But it's really around the repeatability. And Alay, you kind of touched on this in your intro, right? It's like, what is the potential that you can do when you unlock cannabinoids from a chemistry perspective? And I'm not saying it's good or bad compared to, you know, traditional cannabinoids extracted from a plant, but it's it's different, right? And so what are those applications? And so again, kind of going, you know, back into my narrative, you see Delta A getting penalized at the kind of national conversation. Brands like mine in Texas where we're selling Delta 8, now hemp derived Delta 9. The question comes down to, well, is it safe? How did you get it? You know, is it synthetic? What's synthetic versus synthesis? And I've been very quick to correct the conversation. I've been quoted in many articles. I've written articles on the difference between synthetic and synthesis. And so I've become very passionate on this conversation. And I think it deserves airtime, right? Because this is very new cutting edge stuff that people should be talking about at every aspect of our industry. And if you don't want to talk about it, it's like, well, it's coming whether you like it or not. So the point where you guys have become really interesting to me is because I'm like, okay, well, surely there's other cannabinoids. And I know y'all mentioned rare cannabinoids. So I want to certainly dive into that background with y'all of kind of what the scope is, CBN in addition, as well as kind of maybe Rob, your background studying CBN. Like, why were you even studying CBN? What was so fascinating to you to study at that point in college? But to finish the thought, it's people look at these chemically created cannabinoids as really being psychoactive cannabinoids. And the reality is that application can be done with non-psychoactive cannabinoids like CBN. And what I was realizing was a lot of these people in Colorado and California were, you know, turning their nose up to me selling Delta 8, but they're so quick to eat Delta 9 CBN gummy. And I started realizing, oh my God, the CBN that you're using is probably, and I will appreciate you guys correcting me and setting the record straight, but I've concluded the majority of CBN on the marketplace is a chemical process because it doesn't make sense for you to allow the THC to degrade into CBN, which is a natural synthesis of the plant organically. But why would you want to let the THC, if it's so valuable, degrade to CBN? So the next step is to actually create the CBN. And so these same people who are against chemistry for 
psychoactive cannabinoids are not actually against it for CBN. And maybe it's because people aren't talking about it. So I know I just said a lot of things. I do want to kind of back up and if I said anything that you're like, yes, I want to address that. Feel free to like interject in. But I want to touch on Robert, your background studying CBN in particular, and maybe Alay, you can also, whoever wants to go first, depending, kind of break down what are the rare cannabinoids that you're really focusing on it and is CBN the predominant one or what are what else is kind of in your purview? Yeah, let me let me elaborate a little bit. So, you know, there's 120 plus known cannabinoids that are kind of acknowledged. Obviously, the plant genetically, as you try to breed for the, for for certain cannabinoid priority, I guess, THC, CBD, CBG are there. But really, when you're looking at all the others, you're just not going to be able to get to a plant that's going to produce them at any meaningful amount. So uh, that's where chemical synthesis comes in, or in our case, botanical synthesis work, or even, you know, biosynthesis. There's a few different categories of this. To us, it's, it's really about what's the most economical route to make these cannabinoids viable, so that when we do discover, you know, particularly how each one of these might work for medicine, that it's actually capable of going to market and, and providing people with whatever, you know, it, that cannabinoid is meant to do. In the case of CBN, you know, it's really kind of this old story about old, you know, old weed making you tired and that this amount of CBN in there was, was the cause of that. I think that's kind of where just, you know, in our minds, we saw this possibility that CBN could be unique for sleep and kind of drove that piece. You know, our, our baseline, and Rob can elaborate more, is really the oxidative chemistries. So we're interested in cannabinoids like CBN and Delta-8 would be in the same category where we're mimicking or trying to, to create a pathway of uh, moving molecules from the botanical side, so CBD or CBG, into the natural oxidative compounds that they turn into. That's where we really focus our, our work on. And uh, yeah, I'll let, I'll let Rob jump in there for a bit. Well, CBN has a long history, and I'm kind of a nerd for the history of chemistry. Um, CBN was the first cannabinoid to be given a name. That's the reason why it has the simplest of the trivial names of the cannabinoids. Other cannabinoids were all named, you know, in the style of the way that CBN had been named. The history goes back to the 19th century, the last few years of the 19th century. Um, and there are some really old and interesting articles that I kind of became enamored with that had a lot of really useful information in them. And so in simply reading the chemical literature from the past, which doesn't really get read a lot anymore, I learned a lot about working with CBN, having never really been able to work with it yet. And I identified it as an attractive target because it had this long history. There were a large number of studies that had you know, things to say about CBN, and I knew that it could be crystallized because that kind of information was reported in these old studies. And so CBN became an attractive thing for me because I, I identified it as a compound that, as has been discussed, it, you know, is present in the plant, but it's not expressed in the plant you know, to a large degree through genetic factors the way that THC is. You know, its presence in the plant is sort of incidental and sort of that appeared to me to be exactly the kind of process that a chemist like me should be mimicking in trying to accelerate the aging of THCs and, and that sort of thing. And so 
CBN emerged as an early attractive figure. And I think that's sort of borne out. There are certainly a lot of people who take it and like it. It also provided us a model of you know how we approach other cannabinoids. Uh, there are a variety of other cannabinoids out there that exist in the plant, but are not necessarily the product of the plant's metabolism. Right? They're, they're not necessarily produced by enzymatic processes. Instead, they are degradation products, decomposition products. That doesn't make them bad. <laughs> that just makes them a different kind of chemist, different kind of molecule, different kind of product. Not necessarily the kind of thing that you can anticipate the plant is going to produce in a large quantity for you. As you mentioned, there are ways you know that you can accelerate it while it's in the plant or after you've you know extracted. But the important you know thing with CBN is and has always been that it's one of the cannabinoids that can be crystallized, and that has been very important for us and and for our interest in it. Unlike THC, for example, you can crystallize CBN and you can use that crystallization as a method of purification. And so, you know, with in general, the CBN is one of the compounds that you can get the purest. You can isolate it with the highest amount of purity. And that, you know, is most most consumers of edible products don't really have a lot of direct familiarity with working with the ingredients that go into their edible products but you might have noticed in your in your you know survey of edibles that edibles of CBD don't necessarily have any taste associated with them they don't have other compounds added to them it's quite pure and and CBN is added to products in this same very pure format because of this ability to crystallize it yeah the the purity is important to us i mean especially now early on in this because you know if we can reach 99 plus percent purity you can eliminate the risk that is being kind of thrown around right now around these toxic impurities that that we're hearing around synthesis work or you know artificially derived which is a term in oregon now which again we don't like because it's you know it implies something that we don't think is accurate to what's really happening here I mean, there are many categories of molecules out there right now that are naturally occurring, but they're not efficient enough from the plant to be viable. And so we consume artificially derived versions of them. Caffeine is one of those. Most drugs that are based on botanical you know, compounds are actually synthetic and people are consuming those. So it kind of comes back again to which is what you were saying around good practices and the correct chemistries. That's where this is safe. You know, if you for doing this in a garage, you know, arguably just the way cannabis has been, right? Early extraction, then then you aren't doing it to the standard that really needs to be adhered to. So I think that's where the future of these things comes. You know, I think from a safety perspective, looking at, you know, is it GMP? Is it ISO 9001 manufactured? Is it pure enough to be considered that, that there's no other compounds that could be there? Those are just baseline factors for this as we look forward. But, uh, you know, we really want to hit pure compounds because the other kind of future looking component of our business is actually doing research on these compounds to understand where the efficacy lies. In the case of CBN and sleep right now, we are running a 1500 person placebo blinded efficacy study on sleep disorders. And so we're hoping that data later this year that 
CVN is actually effective as a sleep aid. We're testing, you know, multiple dosages. We're even running a control arm of melatonin to be able to compare CVN's effects against melatonin. And, you know, this is really interesting as we start to break down and, and understand which cannabinoids are doing what, when we start to think about what's the full impact of medicine as it relates to this whole ensemble of cannabinoids that are here today, right? They're doing different things. You've got both cellular mechanisms where there's cannabinoids are interacting at the cellular level within the body. And then you have the standard one that everyone kind of experiences, the cannabinoid receptor response, which is, you know, doing an entirely different thing. So there's just so much, at least in our mind, we've started to scratch the surface of this. There's so much potential for how these cannabinoids can be used. There's indicators around there for different studies. They're saying, hey, this is a unique way that these are working. So that's where, you know, we're really excited to continue to, you know, not only CPN, but these other new molecules, some of which are complete new chemical entities. They're cannabinoids that are not found in nature. And we do consider those ones to be of more, uh, we're slower to, to use, you know, bring those around, right? We, we plan to follow standard FDA procedure for toxicology research and, and kind of move those forward more carefully because they are not known. The one thing that's really interesting, and Rob says this all the time, cannabinoids are not toxic as we know today. And they have a broad therapeutic index and they make for, we don't even know what we're looking at yet in terms of the potential here and how cannabinoids could change people's lives and just barely scratching the surface. No, I agree with that wholeheartedly, which is where my fascination, I think, kind of forced by my state's boundaries and, and legislation, right? You get put in a position where, again, I, I kind of keep referencing the legal states compared to more of the hemp forward states. And it's this, you don't have the full plant. So you're just playing around with what you have access to. And I would argue it's almost, and obviously you guys coming from Oregon, very advanced state in terms of both hemp and marijuana. But I do look at what we're able to do with hemp as as surpassing. And to your point, it does require a lot more research because it isn't just the natural state of the plant. It is now what is the potential and power that you can yield from these cannabinoids when studied properly. I mean, obviously getting into dose. It is interesting to note the purity of CBN. I didn't it's one of those things where it's like, I know a lot at the same time, like I don't know shit. Right. And so that's where I really like to humble myself in these conversations. Cause I'm just like, okay, we're learning some stuff. This is great to follow that up. Kind of a two-part question. One, I want to put you a little bit on the spot. Hopefully it's not too much on the spot, but what is the majority of CBN in a product? Let's say a gummy being sold across the United States. I can imagine more hemp is probably going to be a chemically derived CBN, but is there like a 90%, 99%. Again, I'm kind of jumping off thinking, oh, surely the the Wanas, the Wilds, the Kivas, any of those major brands in these major states that are incorporating CBN into their products, that's not, just because you have access to the plant is my point, doesn't mean you're using CBN degraded from the actual plant. You're probably using uh, CBN from a synthesis. And so, yeah. and then the second part is, which I already kind of know the answer, but I would love to hear from y'all being the experts, like, compound structure chemical effect wise 
chemically making CBN versus the naturally occurring CBN, if you can call it naturally occurring, whatever the degradation is of, let's say I find some weed in my closet. I'm assuming if I got it tested and it makes me sleepy, I can assume associate based on the test that it's probably degraded into CBN. So just wondering chemically, because I get confronted with that question, oh, it's a different compound. And it's like, no, it's the same chemical structure. <laughs> so again, we'd just love to kind of hear from y'all's perspective about the differences of how it's derived and also the reality of of where chemically derived CBN is in the marketplace presently today, just to really, you know, kind of put it in perspective. Yeah, let me give just a quick on the first half of that question, then let Rob jump in. But, you know, today, I think there's very little or maybe even no naturally oxidized CBN from, you know, from THC. It's very inefficient and very you'd be very small amounts. You also wouldn't necessarily separate it from the THC. So now you've got a high THC with a little bit. You can't really formulate a product from that. So right. arguably, you know, and not, you know, the cannabis industry is ripe with people who falsify all sorts of things, right? Uh-huh. And so it's difficult, you know, we're, there's probably people out there saying that they're, you know, there's pure CBN uh, that is naturally derived. You know, I, I would I would beg to differ on that one. Yeah, me too. Um, and so, you know, it's just very unlikely. You know, we haven't seen it out there. We've tested samples, you know, across the board from everywhere we can find. And, you know, determined it's not the case, most likely, that anyone has that. But I'll let Rob talk more on just the chemical differences in which there are not any, I believe, but elaborate. Well, there, no, that's the truth is that there really aren't. You know, the interesting thing about CBN is that it's a very stable compound. It's, it's the stable decomposition product that results from the oxidative degradation of many different cannabinoids, and not, not just Delta 9 THC. If you have a pure sample of CBD that you leave out for long enough, you know, you'll generate some CBN in it eventually. So under, under light or under heat or something like that. Uh, CBN is, a, is also a product of human metabolism of other cannabinoids like Delta 9 THC. If you use Delta 9 THC on the regular, especially if you smoke it, you probably are exposed to some CBN during the smoking, but you're, you're probably also generating some in your liver as well. And so CBN is a compound that gets made multiple ways and people expose themselves to it, whether they to or not. It's all the same molecule. You know, it, it, it all has the same identical effect and it has the exact same structure that it's easy to imagine that there could be remarkable differences because there are quite a number of different ways to make cbn like i said your liver is one of them but ultimately we're talking about one molecule that doesn't have any variations in structure and is actually just a very simple molecule yeah it's impossible to tell the difference if you were to look at you know, say you had 2% and some THC and you completely isolated that, it would look the same as CBN that hadn't been synthesized from CBD in our case, making it hemp ingredient. Lost what I wanted to add to that, but I'll let you. If it comes Sorry. back to you, you can interject it. No, I appreciate the time outlining that. Again, it's almost like, you know, dumb question amnesty, but if we don't talk about it, I just don't think people really fully acknowledge it. And obviously, again, I can say it, but I don't have a chemistry background. I don't I don't come from doing this for as many years as, as you respectively or y'all combined. And so I appreciate being able to validate what my 
hunch, my assumption is in these conversations in the industry, because I find there's a lot of people who, I mean, you kind of, you know, were mentioning it, LA, it's like, there's people who might like say that it's pure, but reality wise, we don't really know. And the industry is so new, even though Robert, you were talking like the history of it. What we're doing is not like it's been done for many years, publicly mainstream for there to be like exact as much as there's science and chemistry, they're like exact opinions on it. And so I just find sometimes in conversations, people are like, oh, that's not true. Or like, that's cool that you think that, but like, it's probably not factual. And I'm like, I'm determined to just understand. Again, I'm not taking a stance that synthetics are right or wrong or synthesis or is right or wrong. But I mean, you were talking about it too, Alay, that, and which is kind of my, my, my whole like assumption and, and, and like point for all of this, right? It's, do you take medication over the counter aspirin is one that i keep using in in examples it's like aspirin is derived from plant but it's not produced mass scale from a plant and we have no qualms about putting those products in our bodies and you know ask no questions about how it was created or what the compound was or is the compound the same as that but then when you get to cannabis you have these purists and i again i respect the plant i love the plant if we didn't have the plant i wouldn't imagine we'd be here or be as far as we are in this discovery, but to neglect the chemistry that naturally does occur, whether it's our liver, whether it's exposure to elements, whether it's time, and just the isolation of these cannabinoids functionally is to just like neglect a whole component of the industry. And obviously that's influenced them through you have legislation regulation where these lawmakers these policymakers they didn't really understand that which is where i think we're in some of these positions where the language is around you know isomers or less than 0.3 percent delta 9 thc and you're not accounting for other thcs and so it's very you know you move two steps forward one step to the side maybe three steps backward trying to make sense of it all but to kind of follow that up i would love to hear especially coming from a I'm going to say adult use state, of course, right, where you are playing with the naturally occurring plant to playing around with the chemistry. Again, I know what some of the opinions are and you were talking about, and I want you to repeat it because I don't remember off the top of my head, but what they're calling these synthetic cannabinoids now kind of in your part of the country and just trying to kind of like put it out there for people to understand what are some of the conversations that are happening like I think we can relate because we all understand what's happening but I'm sure you interact with people who are like what you're doing is bad how dare you do that to a cannabinoid and I just want to kind of like unpack that component because I think it's an important question to have also getting into I imagine there are different ways to go about it chemically or or through chemistry again I'm not the chemist in the room so I'm not going to pretend to know the natural oxidization, I've heard of biosynthesis, but if you could just kind of outline, these are the ways that you can make cannabinoids. And obviously there's better natural, more synthetic, more bathtub chemistry versions. And also kind of what has been the sentiment as you've been bringing this out into the world. I know y'all don't have to say the brands you work with, but I know y'all work with some pretty well-known brands in the space who are using these cannabinoids. Like, what is that conversation like when you're approaching them, they're approaching you? Are they like, well, where does this come from? And are they okay with it? Or are they kind of questioning it? If that makes sense, I just want to kind of get a pulse from your perspective, having these conversations. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's 
there's there's research on cannabinoids out there, but not a lot. And so probably, you know, prohibition has really kind of held back a lot of the work that's just starting to happen today, you know, with states like Oregon, you know, when they see what, you know, Delta 8 or Hexa, you know, Delta 10, these other THCs, really the the response there is a threat to the legal market, right? Is that exactly. they're alternative to Delta 9 and they're concerned about the impact that those have to, you know, taxes and controlling the market. So there's an aspect of prohibition still in there. Even in Oregon, where they've now decided to label these as artificially derived, artificially you know, derived. it's been a, a very complicated conversation with them around, you know, what are we dealing with here? You know, when you when when they're trying to look at how they regulate and and make new rules, you know, and in my mind, and I've made these arguments with them that it looks like prohibition. You're saying, hey, we don't like this new thing because it's scary and new, and so we're not going to allow it. And the reality here is, well, we might be we're talking about impactful medicine. And so you're you're not talking about, hey, we don't like people getting high. You're saying we don't want people to even have access to these medicines, uh, which is, you know, the wrong approach because they don't want to lose tax revenue to, you know, synthetic THCs or something, right? All of this confusion and problem really stems to federal legalization is that if the federal government took action, we wouldn't have people supplementing Delta 9 with Delta 8. In most cases. Now, I think Delta 8 is an interesting molecule. It's, you know, on pathway to CBN and probably has a, a slightly different effect for people than Delta 9 does. Maybe it's a little more calming, a little more relaxing. So the reality here is these compounds in their own form are unique effects. You know, like we've talked a lot about terpenes and entourage out there effects and how they work together and, you know, sativa versus indica and one's going to be sleepy and one's energetic. But, you know, it, it's a much more complex conversation when you're really talking about these individual compounds and what effects could be there. So to me, the, the you know, they're really just acting on fear and we're big on safety, right? Like we do not want consumers getting access to things that are unsafe. It's, it's why we would never you know, take a new compound that's never been consumed and then say, hey, people should take this, right? The only CBN we felt comfortable with because you people have been consuming it. As long as they've been consuming cannabis, it's always been there. Um, so yeah, that you had a few questions. There are multiple questions in there. I, I think I hit one of them or two, but yeah, maybe... Rob, do you have anything from what she just said that you want to add there? No, not uh, not explicitly. I, what, that's okay. Yeah. That, uh, well, oh, so the, the types of of chemistries, I think is important. And, you know, we, we picked our category of where we like to work right now. So as it sits today, there's biosynthesis, which would be using a living organism to produce a cannabinoid. So you basically modify that organism to output, you know, and this works with enzymatic like CBD and THCs. And so they would grow it in a molecule and produce CBN. There's fully synthetic, which is where you're taking the com compounds that make up a cannabinoid and you're putting it in a reactor and you're making a new, you know, making a cannabinoid. Yeah. CBD has been done this way. CBC we've seen, THCV has been done that way. You also now have algae produced cannabinoids where you genetically modify the algae to produce the cannabinoids and then you grow the algae it produces you know say thc or cbd 
you collect the biomass just like you would the flowers from the plant and you extract them and you end up with a very similar output. What? Yeah, these, yeah, no. So some of these ideas are very biotech orientated as in terms of how, like, how are we looking at generating molecules? And so they're very new tech and they're just being applied into cannabinoids. quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. I did hear uh, somebody was promoting, and this was kind of early days of hemp, but I'm just going to interject it because I'm just curious. They were making CBD out of oranges. So is that Yeah, that, that would similar... be a full synthetic. Yeah, okay. that's a fully synthetic compound. So, you know, there's oranges. Yeah, I think it's lemon peel. There's a comp, and maybe Robbie, just jump in. Feel free. <laughs> Citrus is the source of, of okay. one of the precursors. That's true. Interesting. Yeah, I was like, remember reading that and being like, no, like how, what? How does that even work? But again, I'm we're, so we're, limited. We're in very the... familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Very familiar with, with fully synthetic CBDs. They haven't done well in the market because no. price point really, right? Is that what, when it comes down to access to these cannabinoids, it comes down to the economics of manufacturing. Do they get treated in the same way, sorry to interrupt, but do they get treated in the same way from a regulatory perspective? Like I was trying to think back to when they were launching that it was kind of like well we're not even hemp derived like we're orange derived and does that kind of skirt around regulation because it's not technically from the plant so even though we're deep in regulation and trying to understand this i would say this is still a little bit of a gray area where they're arguing and this is you know again just back to the legalization issues because epidiolex the drug for epilepsy was approved prior to the farm bill there's no historical like acknowledged historical consumption of cbd as a supplement and so cbd is a drug and is not allowed to be sold as a supplement now obviously everyone's selling cbd today anyway and there's a conversation with the new farm bill this year and some other legislative push to basically say hey we need an exception for cbd it should be a supplement right Mm -hmm. and so they were saying hey because we don't make it from hemp it's not a drug or it doesn't apply to this. I don't think that's the case. Like in this regard, it's still CBD. Uh, and, and arguably, if it doesn't come from hemp itself, as if the, you know, as in biomass from legal hemp is the starting material, then it's a new chemical compound and doesn't. it's not protected under that. Mm. Uh, here in Oregon, the pharmacy board would not consider fully synthetic cannabinoids to be protected under the farm bill. It's a very nuanced regulatory landscape. Again, the biggest challenge here is no one can tell the difference, right? Yeah, I was just about to ask on a test result, again, just on that thought, because this is like where my mind, again, like I have these thoughts and I just jump to all these like endpoints. And then people are like, why do you think about those things? I'm like, because we should all be thinking about these things. Like if you're going to then attack cannabinoid or based on how that cannabinoid is made then you need to have proof of how you can differentiate and obviously when you ingest it you can't really and differentiate between the cannabinoids or the chemical compounds because they're chemically the same testing wise 
you can't tell if something is synthetic or naturally occurring. Can you tell even based on the types of synthesis that it underwent potentially? Yeah, Rob, you want to elaborate a little bit? I think Rob could probably tell the difference yeah. through his work, analytical work, but the lab certainly not. But yeah, yeah. But there are a lot of different ways to make CBN. And no, there isn't a, there's not a skeleton key that will, you know, guide you in the right way to determine exactly how one product was made or the other. You could, certainly by the time that, that CBN gets into an edible product and is a, a relatively small amount of material in there, it, you really lose the ability to differentiate any kind of potential fingerprint that sure. might have been left by the synthesis. So, sorry for the wishy-washy answer, but no. it would be awfully difficult to tell. Even for someone who was an expert at it, it would be awfully difficult to tell. No, that's been very, again, it's, it's kind of like, I just want to gut check because I talk about this and people are like, do you really know? And I'm like, look, I don't have a chemistry background, but I'm pretty sure. I mean, you just look at the inconsistencies, especially as a retailer, right? Like I go get my products tested and we experience this a lot with Delta 8. Early days, you couldn't tell Delta 8. I'll define really some labs, you know, could depending on if they could detect the peak, but then it's a lot of he said, she said. And then now that we're a little bit more advanced, you're still struggling to detect even dosage, right? You know, well, my lab says that this is 10. Well, my lab says that this is eight. I'm like, I don't, part of my French give a shit. I just want to know what it is and what it says and what's, you know, accurate. And so like that to me is a huge hurdle that the industry is going to have to obviously accept, but try to navigate. And I know there's organizations that are trying to get better, you know, standards from a testing perspective. I mean, because you have differences lab to lab within a municipality, you have differences lab to lab, state to state. And so when you get to federal legal, then I, I just think, and I've said it before, I'll say it again, it's a new year, I'll keep, you know, bringing the same drum. How do you get to federal legalization if you can't have any guideline for what you're testing against? And looking at hemp's legalization, we have so many problems that we're trying to figure out. And so to me, knowing that hemp is federally legalized, it just shows the holes, I guess, on the marijuana side of things also confusing. And I know, Alay, you were also talking about just, it seemed like it was mostly like mainly like Oregon's, I guess, like perspective on this. But I also talk about that too, especially in Texas. We maybe have medical marijuana, very rudimentary baby program. So I think you need to have a more robust medical before you get to adult use recreation. But Oregon, y'all were medical, rec, and then hemp was legalized. Here we are, a burgeoning hemp industry. I can sell you products. I can ship it across state lines, CBN, Delta A, Delta 9. You can't smoke it, but hey, you can eat edibles and get compound chemically the same effect. And law doesn't, these litigators, these these legislators, they don't know how to make sense of it. And so I'm not going to say like, I know this is how to do it. This is what we're going to expect. But this is where the playing field got really confusing on the trajectory of federal legalization or, or some version of federal legalization of like, okay, yeah, but yeah. So who regulates these cannabinoids? Where do these cannabinoids go? So maybe Ola, you could so, elaborate a little bit of Oregon yeah. too. Do they ever decide like, well, it should be regulated here versus like the THCs go to adult use and the non-psychoactives should be under hemp, but then you're selling those cannabinoids in ratioed products in dispensaries. Yeah. So Oregon was the first 
kind of acknowledged her of this, right? And they didn't like that Delta 8 was being sold at the gas station down the street from the dispensary that was paying tax, right? So I think that's where the conversation started. It was about a little over a year ago that they started to try to take action on this. And they've implemented new rules in Oregon, effectively banning all of what they call artificially derived, which means that any anytime you convert a molecule from one to another, it was a very broad, then they just consider that an artificially derived cannabinoid. So that impacts um, so everything they, y'all are doing, right? Well, they have the ability to not allow it to be sold to consumers in the state. And they did that because they were granted the right to uh, fix dosage. And so they made the dosage zero, effectively banning it. What they did, however, do is they opened up a interesting way to do it. Yeah. It's kind of where you say, did you really have the authority to do that? It was your intent to give dosage instead of banning, right? So, but in the case of CBN, you know, being one that was heavily consumed that is not intoxicating, they ended up creating a, uh, a window of time. They gave a period of time in which we can become compliant with FDA rules. So one of the biggest issues here is that the FDA should, it is the okay. regulatory body, except that they've done nothing. They won't come out right? and say anything. Yeah, I mean, they've said, hey, you can't sell CBD because it's a drug with Epidiolex, but you know they can't enforce that. It's too too big yeah, of no a thing. Yeah, nobody's enforcing really, it. Like, they need to actually take action and say, okay, well, we know that this is not the case. We're not going to be able to say CBD is a drug because of Epidiolex and actually enforce that. We need to adjust the way we think of our rules and make changes to it. Other cannabinoids you know, don't necessarily have this drug flag planted for them. And so they have a clear path for both what's called GRASS, which is generally regarded as safe, or NDI, a new dietary ingredient filing. And then the year might be off here, very early 90s or maybe 80s, because there's a handful of different dates for different things. They effectively created these rules and said anything that was consumed as a supplement or dietary ingredient prior to this date is grandfathered in, and anything that comes after has to run toxicology and go through these approvals, whether it's grass or NDI. And so when we kind of came into this, we said, well, this is exactly what we're going to do. We're going to follow the FDA rules. And that's kind of the route we see, especially for molecules that are unknown in terms of human consumption, you know, different from, from CBN or Delta-8 even. And so, yeah, Oregon thought, I believe they thought they were leading this idea that, you know, consumers don't want this, you know, it's not okay, it's totally unsafe, you know, and they they, they threw around all these issues. And, you know, I, I can acknowledge the Pandora's box of chemistry, where it's like, look, the moment you open this up, there's a lot of possibilities, right? Yeah. You know, who knows? We talk about just creating new molecules, but in the ones that we're talking about today, we're not creating these, you know, new crazy drug molecules that look like cannabinoids, but are not, in essence. And so we haven't seen any other states follow their lead. I think they thought a lot were going to. We certainly have had conversations with states. You know, California, Colorado has been a big one. And Colorado has implemented a task force to evaluate this, but have chosen, and they've taken also aggressive moves on Delta A. Again, this is a battle between intoxicating markets where it's like, you know, we're losing revenue to this stuff. Uh, until federal legalization changes, that's going to be the case, right? Because Delta 9 is going to be more expensive than Delta 8 and less available until they change that. And then it will come down to, hey, which molecule actually makes me feel better? 
you know, for whatever I'm trying to do. Is it Delta 9 or is it Delta 8 or CBN? So we're just kind of at the threshold for how regulators, especially at the state level, even acknowledge this because it's such new information. But the FDA is is really the, the regulatory body that, that handles everything we consume, whether it's a drug or a food. And so we really need, you know, them to, to kind of get their house in order and figure out how they're going to address it. And we really need the federal government to, to recognize that, you know, it shouldn't be schedule one in the first place. We need to open this up and start learning. But yeah, I yeah. was in <laughs> D.C. in September of last year lobbying with the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, and we were going to different offices and trying to get these senators and representatives to take action with some upcoming House and Senate bills that would effectively, you know, put pressure on the FDA to, you know, make it a dietary supplement and give some regulatory, you know, influence on it. And it's I'm sure with your status and involvement with your state kind of trying to lead some of these conversations and being an active advocate, it's like once you start getting into those conversations, it's like, oh, this is how politics works. And so I'm, I'm, yeah, exactly. And I'm not, again, I think my listeners know this about me. I try to keep it very real. I just, I don't want anybody to be surprised or shocked. Like, you know, it's just, I'm going to roll my sleeves up. Texas is in legislation right now. We know there's active bills against the language and it's like I'm gonna go I'm gonna try to talk to people and be a good representative and advocate and try to correct the semantics where I can but also knowing it's moving at a glacier pace and also becoming increasingly more confusing like it is really crazy to understand where the jurisdiction and, and like you said there's the the compounds that are being made that are natural occurring to some extent versus the Pandora's box of everything. And I get it from a regulator perspective. They're cautious too. I would be as well. But I think what I wish they would see, and so as a PSA to any regulators or legislators listening out there, because I know some of the states do actually listen, their teams listen, the states that can actually find people who are knowledgeable and bring them in and work with them versus trying to do this work internally in isolation. Like that was a really big miss I saw in DC was these offices. I mean, we even talked to the Department of Agriculture and they're like, yeah, we're kind of familiar with hemp. And it's like, well, we want you to be really familiar with hemp. They're like, you know how long the farm bill is? And we're like, yeah, but our issues are really important. And again, just kind of, you know, wow, how do you get influence? How do you help them? And here's a really interesting, it's two parts, but of just how I think these issues of kind of longstanding, you know, negative viewpoints of cannabis and just this everlasting prohibition. So CBD is obviously being consumed. There's a company called Radical Sciences that set up to try to do efficacy studies for CBD and, and cannabinoids. They were told they could not do studies on CBD after. So they did a few and then they basically got shut down by the FDA to do CBD studies. And so you know, they're effectively not even allowing anyone to do any of this work when it turns to what the potential medical benefits could be. They do, are doing our CBN study, and again, nuance there. But in Oregon, for example, here, they use their authority in hemp to ban CBN from being sold in grocery stores, et cetera, alongside CBD. So they're continuing to allow CBD. They forced CBN to be sold in recreational cannabis products and said, if you want to keep selling these products past you know, 18 months, you need to get grass or NDI. Come back to us. And 
the issue here is that when we do get grass or NDI and we come back, where does the rule now lie for this product that should be allowed to be at a drugstore or a grocery store? Because now you've limited right. patient access to these molecules and are forcing it to be sold through your system in which you tax it, right? And this is, you know, not technically under your restriction, in essence. So it's very complicated when when states, at least in my view, when states are trying to self-correct for the uh -huh. lack of federal action, right? Is that uh -huh. we're going to have more nuanced problems down the road. And, you know, the people that get hurt from that is the patients who are looking for access to these things. I mean, in the case of CBN for sleep, you know, there, there's a lot of drugs out there for sleep that are not good. And if CBN turns out to be effective enough to displace those, and then we're going to say, hey, you can actually get access to this in places in which you should. Yeah, this is not a good look for for how how we handle these things and regulators i think definitely need to acknowledge that you know we want to be thoughtful about safety we certainly want to be balanced and not just become more have more prohibition of this stuff well especially when companies are fighting and wanting to study it and then they're getting shut down yeah, uh, for uh, taking the steps to quantify, qualify. It's like when we were in D.C., we were showing up and we were saying, no, we want regulation. <laughs> like, we want to work with you. We want to be good players. We want to get all your certifications. We want to do whatever you want us to do to operate in this industry. Let's work together. Don't just start making slashes in legislation and then being like, okay, well, this is the new rule. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not even listening to us at that point. And so it's, it's just a very weird reality. And so it's crazy. I hadn't heard about, obviously, some of those specifics that you just shared of... Oh, complicated, that. Uh, yeah, very just... I wanted to actually mention something about testing, too. Um, we talked about it for a minute. I didn't get to, but uh, the variance is 20%. And so the, you know, the accuracy is not particularly high, especially when we're talking about you know, 99% pure molecules, they could produce a test result in theory at 80% or, you know, 120, at least when it's 120, they know they made a mistake. <laughs> right. At least sounds better too. It's like, hey, we're extra yeah. pure versus, yeah, on the uh, latter end, it's like, yeah, no, I promise it's pure, just those, the test is, has that's, to be That's error. been our challenge for sure with labs is just, saying, you know, working very closely with them to say, hey, look, we, you know, an 80%, even though it's within your variance of error, doesn't work for our, our product. We need people to be confident that they know that our product is pure. You know, the interesting thing is the, this is more related not to our business at all, but just to cannabis in general, and particularly flour and extract sales. The incentives of labs is not to produce accurate test results. The incentive of labs is to produce the highest test result possible while making it defensible because that's where the business is going to go because have this interesting idea of california that continues to produce higher and higher thc flour mm -hmm. to the point of 40 percent thc and you know i'm not saying that we're not getting better at genetics and right. thcs are getting higher but arguably this is just incremental moves in how labs conduct testing to slightly up themselves you know, one percentage at a time until all of a sudden we're seeing 40% THC. Rob probably, you know, walk all over everything I'm saying because he's a, right. you know, THC chemist, but he might the, have the same. The, the labs have a set of challenges that they try to meet. And, you know, the it's difficult to run a lab and make money at it in every state. And, you know, I, I'm very sympathetic to the, to the sure. poor chemists who are trying to make it work. I don't, in general, have too many negative things to say, uh, you know, no, about the labs or the uh, or the or the regulators. I mean, everyone's trying, right? Everyone's trying to 
come up with the right way to move forward because I think everyone knows that we need to move forward, you know, in a couple of different directions, but there is still looming over everyone the burdens of legality and the unknowns, questions with respect to federal perspectives on things like Delta 9 THC. And so our approach business-wise has been to stay with hemp-derived non-psychoactive compounds. That's a pretty self-limited approach. If we had freer reign, we would work on more things. And so, um, yeah, we, we definitely missed the, the Delta train early, you know, early it was within our wheelhouse to manufacture it. We, we chose, yeah, just to stick, like you said, to, to non-intoxicating. We weren't sure what the landscape was going to look like, you know, looking back now and seeing where it's gone, you know, obviously there's a lot of consumption of Delta 8 and it's, it's really spread across the United States. But again, just as a, as a replacement to Delta 9, because we can't get access and people want it. Like, you know, it's, uh, it's time for change. It's just going slower than I think any of us expected, especially for those of us who've been here for, you know, a decade. <laughs> no, I can't even imagine historically looking back at everything you've seen the industry expand to become. And on that vein of, you know, obviously thinking of the consumer, which is certainly one of my, you know, pillars of, of belief and of the podcast, it's reminding everybody we're in this industry for consumers. We sell consumer packaged goods, and I have a lot of consumers who love Delta 8, who have had Delta 9, and they prefer Delta 8. So it is my job as a retailer, as a brand, to source the highest quality, most efficacious, manufactured Delta 8 for those consumers who want to elect to make that choice for themselves. And I think that's very disruptive to the straight, narrow path. If you can say that cannabis is a straight, narrow path in terms of what the plant produces, but now it's become a much broader industry than we could have ever imagined. And it's just like, yeah, how do you exist in it? How do you participate in it? How do you be a good advocate, operator, educator, all the above? But I feel very grateful to have had your time for this conversation. It was very enlightening for me. I would like to just leave the floor open for final thoughts. If there's anything that you didn't say that you want to add to make sure gets shared slash Let's maybe end on a high note, if there is a high note. Yeah, no, I know I don't always sound super positive, <laughs> but I try to be as much as I can remind myself, like, it's not always, you know, bad. So, like, what are some of the exciting things maybe that FloorWorks is focused on, you know, in the next quarter or maybe in 2023 or maybe it's something in Oregon? So, yeah, just final yeah, thoughts I mean, my, and high note. <laughs> my high note is actually broad and, and beyond floor, FloorWorks, although we are part of it, is that there are a lot of companies right now that are really focused on on looking at these and doing this efficacy work across many diseases. So it is early, but there is just going to be, you know, a wave of data coming down the road here that's just going to blow people's minds, I think, in terms of the efficacy that we're looking at across all the different ways these cannabinoids work in the body. And especially as we, you know, look at really minute changes and things that happen in terms of these these minor cannabinoids. So yeah, very exciting times, tons of great research on the way, lots of new medical breakthroughs coming. I think cannabinoid therapeutics is really, you know, an overlooked space for many people. It's just, it's been shadowed by the recreational market thus far. Rob, final thoughts? Oh, that was really well put. Uh, I don't I don't have a lot to add. You know, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of potential left in cannabinoids to do things that are not necessarily even hard to predict. I think a lot of people 
anticipate that there are going to be breakthroughs like the type that LA is referring to because it's kind of understood how this useful set of compounds has been sequestered away for so long. Yeah. I couldn't agree more and grateful to have you guys fighting the fight and, and trying to establish good practices and good chemistry. And thank you for being transparent and blunt today with me and my audience. It's always appreciated. I know these conversations sometimes are uncomfortable to both, you know, communicate on and also to listen. So I know the listeners probably are, you know, what the hell? I got to, you know, change the way that I thought about X, Y, or Z. But again, I think that's a good thing because the industry is still unpacking itself. And so I just look forward to what, what we're all going to be able to be a part of in the coming months and years and see the impact and the fruits of our labor. So thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank yeah, you. thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Have a good rest of your day. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.